Scripture today is from Isaiah 41, 1 through 10. Coastlands, listen to me in silence and let the peoples gain new strength. Let them come forward, then let them speak. Let us come together for judgment. Who has aroused one from the east whom he calls in righteousness to his feet? He delivers up nations before him and subdues kings. He makes them like dust with his sword as the wind-driven chaff with his bow. He pursues them, passing on in safety by a way he had not been traversing with his feet. Who has performed and accomplished it, calling forth the generations from the beginning? I, the Lord, am the first, and with the last, I am he. The coastlands have seen and are afraid. The ends of the earth tremble. They have drawn near and have come. Each one helps his neighbor and says to his brother, Be strong. So the craftsman encourages the smelter, and he who smooths metal and the hammer encourages him who beats the anvil, saying of the soldering, It is good. And he fastens it with nails so that it will not totter. But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, descendant of Abraham, my friend, you whom I have taken from the ends of the earth and called from its remotest parts and said to you, you are my servant. I have chosen you and not rejected you. Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not anxiously look about you, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Surely I will help you. Surely I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. I'd like to say uh, good morning to you, but uh, I'm sure some of you are not having a good morning and you're somewhat on edge. We find ourselves all throughout our life being on edge, probably more off, obviously more often than we'd like to, waiting for something to happen, for someone to do something, or someone to stop doing something. That began with me when I was in my mother's womb. <laughs> I, I was feeling claustrophobic. I wanted to get out of there, so I couldn't wait to get out of there. So I kicked, and I threw my elbows and let everybody know I wanted out, so they finally let me out. And then I wanted to be fed, and I had to wait to be fed many, many times. And so I would scream and I would cry to get fed. Then later on, when I was in high school, sophomore, and I remember I wanted to graduate from high school. I couldn't wait to get out of high school. So I could go out and destroy my own life without my parents influencing me. (laughs) And then I wanted to get married as a young adult. But I had to wait. You know, life is consumed with frustrations and and hardships that that signal painful periods of waiting. Waiting for that job, waiting for a raise, waiting for a mate, waiting for a child, waiting for that pain to finally go away, waiting for that debt to finally be taken care of, waiting for waiting for our kids to finally get their act together. You know, our adult kids, as parents, we worry about that, are waiting for our parents to get their act together. And what we do is we worry, and it leads to anxiety, and we get frustrated, and we frustrate everybody around us. And it's because we cannot control the people and the circumstances in our life as we would like. But as spiritual people... We want to be spiritually strong. To gain spiritual strength, we need to wait upon the Lord. 
Just like a person who wants to be physically strong has to exercise, so we have to exercise spiritually. And that is waiting upon the Lord, which is extremely hard for us to do. Because we are prone to worry, and sometimes that's all we have to do. Instead of putting our mind on those things which are good and honorable and pure and all that that Paul tells us to do in, in, the, in, the, in his writings, we put our mind on the wrong things. And today now we're going to look at chapter 41 in Isaiah that was read through the first 20 verses, at least the 10 that were read. And, and it's going to, he's going to give us insight on how we can wait upon the Lord. How are we going to do it? It's hard. And I'm going to give you two mental exercises that I am noticing in this passage that will help us to do that. Let's pray. Father, we know that waiting upon you is a uh, slow, disciplined learning process, especially when those difficult issues are right in our face and we want an answer, a conclusion right now. Help us to uh, focus on a, a couple of real basic truths that can help us really learn how to wait upon you, which is to trust in you, hope in you. In Jesus' name we pray. Well, that first mental exercise is to know that God directs the events of our lives. The scriptures say that man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. And there are three or four verses in the Proverbs that say it in different ways. No matter what comes our way, the good, the bad, or the indifferent, uh, God wants us to know that he is there, and, and we need to recognize his involvement, not only in the overall course of history, but also in our little lives. He wants us to mount up with wings as eagle and run and not be worried and walk and not faint, which is a life filled with a thriving confidence in him, which puts the brakes on the emptiness of worry. And in the, in the overall context, what we have here is the nation of Israel is worrying. They have something to worry about because the Babylonians, according to Isaiah's prophecy, are going to come in and take them into captivity. Then once they're in the captivity, they're going to be worrying, anxious, because they want to go back to their homeland. So they have something to worry about. And he's going to get, get to the, his, his response to them, as he already has in chapter 40, when we get down to verse, verses... Uh, uh, 10 and following. But at first now, in this section, in the first seven verses, he wants to deal with the nations because there's a, they're going to have a problem too. Because when God, in his prophecy, and we're going to see this in the next week, in the end of chapter 41, and over in chapter 45, we're going to see that God's going to send in Osiris, the king of the Persians, and he's going to deliver Israel and bring them back. In the meantime, his army is going to sweep across the Middle East, he's all the way from Iran, Persia, all the way to Greece, and then down into Egypt and do all that destruction. So he's telling the nations here in that first verse, when he says, Coastlands, listen to me in silence, and let the peoples gain new strength. Let them come forward, then let them speak. Let us come together. Me... God, and you, the, the coastlands, the nations, and uh, we're going to come together for judgment. We're going to see who's strongest here. When that enemy comes in, who are you going to trust? Where are you going to get your strength? 
and then I'll tell you about my strength. One of the uh, interpreters, there are interpreters that believe that when he says in that second line of verse 1, and let thy peoples gain new strength, that he's referring to the verses back in chapter 40 at the end when he talks about uh, waiting upon the Lord and he'll renew your strength. He says this to Israel. He's not saying it to Israel. He's saying it to nations because he wants to mock them and tell them that he's much stronger than their gods are. And the reason we have that is, is when we get to 5 through 7, he's going to talk about that some more. Plus the fact that the word he uses for peoples here is not the normal word that's used hundreds of times for people, the people of Israel, uh, my people. Uh, it's a different word that's only used uh, 32 times, and it's always referring to the nations. Mainly referring, when they say coastlands, that's where most of the nations like to reside, by the ocean. And... Uh, and so as he moves through, and I, what I'm going to do here is I'm going to skip over two through uh, four. This is God's little insert through, as he speaks through Isaiah, because he's going to talk about his strength. But let's go on into that fifth verse through seven and talk about the coastlands again, because he, he's, he's, he's building his argument against them. He says, the co- verse five, the coastlands have, have seen and are afraid. Who are they afraid of? Cyrus, who's coming in the future. He isn't there yet. This prophecy is about 170 years ahead of time when, the, when, when Cyrus finally comes with his, with his army. The coastlands have seen, they're afraid. The ends of the earth tremble. They have drawn near and have come. Each one comes to help his neighbor and say to his neighbor, be strong. The enemy's coming. I'll encourage you, you be strong. Okay? In other words, like me saying, trust God, just trust God. <laughs> okay. So, the craftsman encourages the smelter. Come on, smelter, do your job. And he who smooths metal with the hammer encourages him and, and, and beats the anvil, saying uh, of the solderer, Oh, you're doing a great job. You're doing good. And he, and he fastens it with nails so that it will not totter. So they get their God. They build it up with wood and puts all kinds of metal on it sometimes. And they go, that's our God. Oops, it's tilted. Hammer it over here and straighten it right up a little bit. And God says in chapter 40, they are nothing. A bunch of wood. We throw that wood into our fireplaces. Okay, now, you take that God, and for us, it's man's, man's world today is, well, we can solve the problem with our intellect, with our money, with our strength. We can even call upon the government to do the job for us. We can do it ourselves. We leave God out of it. But God says, now let's go back to two through through four. Who has aroused one from the east? That's Cyrus that he's going to be talking about in the future chapters. Whom he calls in righteousness to his feet. He delivers up nations before him and subdues kings. He makes them like dust with the sword, as the wind-driven shaft with his bow. He pursues them, passing on in safety by a way, as he's pursuing these nations, by a way he had not been traversing with his feet. He doesn't even know where he's going. He's just going out there and destroying the nations that are ahead of him. That's his calling in his little brain. And God says, I'm the one that's sending him. That's the kind of power I have. The latter part of four. Calling forth the generations from the beginning. And he says, I, the Lord, am the first and with the last. 
I am He. I'm the one that that, that uh, arouses the one from the east. I'm the one that calls Him. I'm the one that delivers up the nations. I'm the one that makes them like... I'm, well, He's going, I pursue them. And so He's talking about, this is me. I'm the one that's powerful, can get into the minds of these guys. And we see this all throughout the book of Isaiah and back into the kings and the chronicles of the, of the other... The experiences they have and the nations that come against Israel, what does God do? Those nations, he gets into their head. And right when they're about to do some destruction, they get all messed up and do something else. God moves them away. He knows how to do that. And so if he is our Israel's God, and which he is as, as a nation at that time, as he describes it, and we as his people also are ones that he directs our lives as he directs history. You know, an example of that is really right in our own lives, as we can see that uh, when we were babies and young children, our, our parents directed our ways. And one of my vivid examples is my oldest son, our, our first son, when he was uh, just old enough to stagger, you know, and he, and he walked. And we went to a mall in Phoenix, one of their great big malls in 83 million people are there, and I just let him take off. My wife goes into a shop. Well, I'm going to go with, with Lael right here, and we'll just, I'll just kind of watch. And I'm walking behind him. And, you know, those little kids, they just, you know, they're, they're kind of staggering all over the place. And the people coming in our direction, they're, oops, watch out for that kid. Oop, you know, because he doesn't know what he's doing. So we get down to a point where it turns left. You go straight or left. I got out in front of him. And he, he, he can't go any further. I'm blocking him because I want him to go that way. So he finally turns and he goes down there to this ice cream place that I was going to. I wanted to put him in that ice cream shop. And what was great, I've never found an ice cream place better than this. They're, they're two inches wide, two inches thick, and four inches tall. And what they do is they pull that out of the freezer, they dip it in the chocolate, pull it out of the chocolate, and roll it in nuts. I wanted to bless my boy. And that's how I got him there. And he didn't even know what was going on. And I got a blessing too, because I bought two of them. <laughs> now, my wife and I are just so happy that we are grandparents now. We're 20 years behind our peers, but we finally have a grandchild. Uh, little Rosie, and she's 15 months old, and she's staggering around, and we have to take care of her, staggering around the house like a drunken sailor trying to learn how to walk. And, and, she, and she, 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 she tries to destroy everything she can get because she's, you know, experimenting. And she picks up stuff, and there's a trail every place she goes. If it's up here, she's got it down. She's making this mess. She's also trying to hurt herself, and she doesn't know it, or even kill herself. Uh, she, she wants to get into the cupboards under the sink where the poisons are. Uh, she... Uh, she will run, run around the house and find a tall place and try to crawl up so she can fall off. If we took her down to the Boise River, she wouldn't need an inner tube or a raft. She would just go right out into the, the river and float down. Because she doesn't, you know, she's not all there. <laughs> she puts rocks in her mouth. If we had a pair of scissors lying around, she'd be running through the house with the scissors. And what do we do as parents? We're out there putting those safety latches on the doors under the sink and we're trying to take anything that looks dangerous out of the way. We're trying our best to keep our little ones to at least reach their terrible twos. 
And then you got another program to work with. And what do our kids do? Our little ones like that, as they're moving around, they ignore us and they do what's right in their own little exploratory minds. But we, as we try to spare them and help them and direct them to make them happy, we also take them places, put things in front of them that make life, life difficult because they're going to have to experience that. So we take them to the doctor. We'll take them to the dentist. When they get out of line, we'll whack them in the bottom. Uh, we will take them down to the park at the jungle, at the gym, little jungle gyms down there, whatever they call them. And, and, and they'll climb up and they'll bump their head. They'll fall off into the sand. They'll go down the slide with their feet first. And before they get to the bottom, they're going backwards and they're crying when they get down there. We take them into difficult places so they'll learn and to grow up. And sometimes we put them in the hands of those dreaded volunteers in the Sunday school nursery. (laughs) And we know they hate that. But that's our pattern because we care for them. As parents put conditions and people into the lives of our little, their little wanderers. So God puts us in both desirable and undesirable situations so that he can show off his power and his love. Remember, God put Pharaoh in the face of Moses and the Israelites so she, he could show off his power. He put the Pharisees and the Sadducees in the face of of Jesus so he could show off his love. He put the Romans in the Roman prison in the face of the Apostle Paul so he could show off his written word as he wrote to many of the churches. God puts people and circumstances in our our life so he can show off as we plan our way. When I I, uh, had a couple years of junior college, I was in baseball, and I signed a contract with the Cleveland Indians to go down to Tucson, Arizona for spring training. That was my plan, to be a professional baseball player. But they released me. That ended the plan. So I set another plan. Well, I think I'll go just join the Army and get that over with. Uh, they're going to draft me anyway, and then I'll, I'll take it from there. And my mom says, no, you can't do that right now. You're going to have to go up to Idaho and to Pocatello. Our aunt is dying. And so we went up there in the circumstances. While I was there, I discovered, hey, God put me at that higher institution of learning on the east side of Idaho, Pocatello, that most of you don't even know anything about it. And so there he put me there, but he also had to, he had to put me uh, in a place to live. So he put me in a little tiny room in the basement of a home on the corner of 9th and Date, Date, uh, uh, Denton Street. And then he left. He went on a, now I wasn't a Christian during this time. He took a flight to Chicago. Now, I don't know why anybody would want to go to Chicago. Maybe Josh, but... Uh, <laughs> And so he, he took a flight to Chicago, and he found Ron Lewis going to Moody Bible Institute. He says, Ron, I want you to go to that institution in Pocatello and get your degree in anthropology, because he was going to be a missionary. And then he not only did he put him in Pocatello, but he put him in that room right next to mine on the corner of 9th and 10th. And on November 16th, 1965... 
Ron ventured into my room and he said, Mark, are you interested in knowing about God? That's not the way you start a witnessing conversation. You got to give a guy a survey or something. But he just simply said, are you interested? Well, I believed that there was a God. I didn't know him. I didn't, I didn't know the difference between Jesus and a, bucket, a box of Cracker Jacks. And so I said, well, yeah. And he sat down and he went through the scriptures, opening page to page, and showing me that I had needed to repent. I was a sinner. And that Jesus Christ had come into my life. And Christianity was not about a church or a religion. It was about a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And he said, you receive Christ into your life, and he forgives you when you repent, and he changes your life. He reveals himself to you, and you have eternal life. Wow, that was new to me, and he changed my life forever. But then many years later, when I was married and I had uh, four children, my wife and I live in here in Boise, and I uh, had severe back problems with extreme pain, off and on for five years. I hated the pain, and I also hated being in debt as we went into tens of thousands of dollars of debt just trying in our loans to survive during this period of time. Why would God do that? Why would he put such a negative thing in my life? Because he wanted to put me somewhere else. I couldn't function the way I was, and so he sent me into a new direction. God does what he has to to show off who he is. Where has God put you in the past? Can you, can you think of those times in your life from a child on, and you planned this, and you planned that? It didn't happen. The road kept changing. You kept moving in a different direction. And God is leading you along the way so that he can show off through each of us. And when we know and accept that hardship, that, that, that those hardships really are under God's loving direction, it's much easier for us to wait upon him because he knows where he's taken us. He directs history and he directs our own lives. So that's the mental picture we need to have to help us. If, if that's who he is, which I believe he is, then I don't have to go through this anxiety. Okay, the second mental exercise is knowing that I belong to him. Just like he says here in verse 8, when he's talking to Israel now, and he says, But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, to send to Abraham, my friend, you whom I have taken from the ends of the earth and called from the remotest parts and said to you, you are my servant. I have chosen you and not rejected you. Do not fear, for I'm with you. Do not anxiously look about you, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Surely I will help you. Surely I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Now, what's interesting about this, when he says, do not fear, and then that second line in verse says, verse 10 says, do not anxiously look about you. And the word anxiously there, as we have it in the English, is the same word in the first line. It's the word fear. Although it's an adverb here connected to the verb look. So he's saying, don't be fear-looking. My two youngest children, when things were going bad with them, they would go, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? They were, they were afraid of the future, what's going to happen. And that's what he's telling Israel here. Don't be fear-looking. That's what anxiety 
really is. Jesus did the same thing for us. He told us, do not be anxious. Don't be anxious for tomorrow, what, what food or clothing you wear. Uh, seek first the kingdom of God. Why? Because I have given you eternal life. He says back in the first part of chapter 5 of the sermon, I gave you eternal life. You are now a, 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 a light to the world and the salt of the earth. Why? So I can show off through you, through good and hard times. It's all really about God and his glory. Uh, Jesus goes on to refer to the little sparrows. And he says, the sparrows don't worry. He says, so why should you worry? I take care of the sparrows. What's interesting, you think about the sparrow. It's this little brown bird, little, very, very browns, a little black for the males and a little bit of white stuck in there. But nobody ever says, look out the window. What is it? It's a sparrow on the, on the fence. We don't do that because they're the little common birds. They're commons. We, look, we want to see the bird with the beautiful red or the orange or the yellow on them. Then we start to point. And Jesus talks about them in Matthew 10 and over into Luke chapter 12 about the sparrows. And he says, you can buy two sparrows with one little tiny copper coin, a penny, the smallest coin they make. And in Luke chapter 12, he says, you can buy five sparrows with two little copper coins. <laughs> and I'm, I'm thinking, you know, I kind of like the old Kmart blue light special, you know. You get one extra sparrow. Well, why, why would anybody want to buy a sparrow? Because the poor, some of the poor people, that's all they could eat sometimes. They would eat a little tiny bit of meat that's on a sparrow. You're not going to the restaurant and ordering, ordering a sparrow's wing because you're not going to get much nourishment. <laughs> but he talks about these sparrows. And he says, if he cares for the sparrows, these little somewhat insignificant little birds, and, and if they fall to the ground and die, he says, I know it. I watch out for them. <clears throat> when I was a, a boy, I had a BB gun. And I wasn't very nice to the sparrows. So I'm trying to do penance. I built four birdhouses on my fence. And now I take care of the sparrows. I'm trying to make up for you know, being a bad little boy. And so we've got scores of, especially in the summer, they're kind of flying around, scores of sparrows, the kids, the mom, the dad, the grandmother, the grandfather, the great-grandfather, the gra they're all there. And sometimes they come, these huge mouths, come back and celebrate and have a big picnic in my backyard, and they eat the bugs and they poop all over our fence. That's okay. We are like the sparrows. We are the common ones. Uh, we are not the powerful and the glamorous, those who seek real meaning and, and glory in this life. We are the people who frequent Walmart and Savers. We go to garage sales. We are the poor, the disabled, and the uneducated. We are the rejected and the abused and the lonely as the world looks down upon us. We are the rich who drank the poison of a nasty divorce or the loss of a very close loved one or the, or the statement, the diagnosis that we have some kind of a terminal disease. We are those who fell on our knees in repentance and called upon the love of God 
who gave us a Savior and grants us the privilege of being called His children, His friends, His chosen ones. We are like the sparrows. We're common and deeply loved. You remember Israel when He took Israel? And He says in the Scriptures, I didn't call you because you were the great nation and you had the most people. I called you because you were the least. Because in you, I can show off. And whether the world knows it or not, when they're around us, God wants to show off to them uh, through us. My my sons used to like to collect baseball cards. And (laughs) they're the top baseball players and then there's the commons. The 98% commons. And so my son said here some time ago, well, I kept all the, the really good ones. I threw all the commons away. And so we're seen as commons in the world because of our belief in Jesus Christ. When I went to high school, you remember when you graduated from high school? Probably not as much they don't talk about it. back in my day, you know, before the ark. They had a, a long list, and you could see where you graduated. Your number was there. We had 442 graduates of our senior class in high school. And I wanted you to know just how high I graduated. I graduated right at the top of the bottom half of my class. 221. And some of you mathematicians would see that, no, you're the bottom of the top half of the class. Either way, I was a common. And I've always been a common. My roommate in, in college down there at that north, south, east, Pocatello, he's a year before me, and he moved to Boise, and there was a, uh, a, 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 a little magazine called the, uh, what was that little magazine, uh, the parade magazine that used to be an insert into the Statesman, and it was pretty good size, and, and it was colored and all that, and they would talk about things going on in Idaho, and they wanted to find the average Idahoan. Now, my buddy, when we were in Pope, he says, I'm not, I don't want to be average. He says, I want to be somebody. And I'm going to go out in this world and take it by the tail. <laughs> so they had to find somebody that was a, uh, worked for the government and was married with two kids. So when the paper came out, there he was on the front page. Average Idahoan. How embarrassing, how humbling. <laughs> we are average. Uh, we're like a, really a bunch of sparrows, but we don't want, and we want to, he wants us to act like sparrows. The only difference is we have a tendency to worry about everything. It's been said that anxiety is, is a disease of the mind that believes that everything is an emergency. You've heard that before. And most of these things that we're anxious about, we're afraid they're going to happen. They're not there yet. We're just afraid. So Calvin Coolidge was great. Calvin Coolidge says, when you see ten troubles coming your way down the road, Nine of them are going to end up in the ditch before they ever get to you. So we worry about a lot of things that are unnecessary. Now, to be concerned about things, that's fine. Plan your way with regard to those things. You've got to plan your way. Do what you can. But God is the one that's going to direct. Uh, If we're going to be more like the sparrows and just uh, wait upon God, we need to know that we really are loved by Him, that there's strength in knowing that we are loved, that we belong to somebody. And everybody here, I hope, and some of you maybe not, were raised by good parents, or maybe it was just a, a dad, maybe it was just a mom, maybe it was your aunt or your grandma or your grandpa who gave you a little bit of love, who gave you some attention, 
who fed you and had a bed for you. And when you came home from school, they were there for you. And they encouraged you. And, and, and we need that. And, and that gives us real strength to, to, to really live this life. Uh, I, when I was in Little League, and even right on up, I'm sorry, but right on up into college, when I was playing baseball, now, of course, well, part of my college was in, in my hometown. So I would look. Remember, I'm a little leaguer. You probably did this, too, and you're playing left field. And there's nothing to do in baseball. You just basically are standing around, you know. So once in a while, something happens. But I would, I would always peer over. I didn't want to make a big deal out of it, but I'd look for my parents, you know. Or I'd be on the bench. Now, is my dad here? You know, I wanted that security in a little ways like that. Now, when, when we were in Moscow, my kids were playing all kinds of different sports. And, and my son and I were at a basketball game. There were seven, eight, nine-year-olds were playing basketball, running back and forth. And there was this kid named Daniel. And Daniel... When he'd run down the court, he'd look over to the side in the bleachers and wave at his dad. <laughs> now, that's somebody. He really wants to know that dad is there. And uh, at times, he would run out of bounds, or the other kids would be, the ball's coming back this way, and he'd crash into the other kids. He wasn't paying attention, but he shows that he really wanted to know that dad, dad was, was there, or mom was there, watching him and encouraging him. And then there was uh, Risha. And when my, my wife and I were in southern, southern uh, Arizona, and I was an assistant pastor, and I worked with the, with the youth a little bit, and, and the pastor's daughter needed to go to a gymnastics e- event where she was performing. And so my wife and I took her, and we brought her home, and we walked into her house, and she began to break into tears and high-performance anger, saying, I hate my parents. I hate my parents. They never come to anything I do. That poor little gal uh, suffered the anxiety that was unnecessary. She didn't feel that love. She didn't have the strength, even though she, she knew God, and to some degree it's hard to say what's going on there. God said to Israel, and he says to us, You are my servant. I chose you. I am your God. I will uphold you. You know, that's what Jesus tells us, that we are his sheep. We hear his voice and we, and we follow him. And nothing shall snatch this us out of his hand or out of the Father's hand. And then we go to the Romans 8, where we're told that he never leaves us or forsakes us. And... There are times, and I'm sure if we got some testimonies here, some of you could say, I gave up on God. I turned, I couldn't take it. Life was just too tough. And so we walked away from God. If you were really his sheep, and he gave all of his sheep the spirit of his spirit when he went to be with the Lord, that spirit stays with us until the day our bodies are redeemed. We cannot get away from Jesus once Jesus comes into our life. Because he never breaks a promise. And he says, I will never leave you. You go on the back here behind the stage, you can even go to Pocatello. And nobody wants to go to Pocatello. Maybe Chicago. <laughs> but he's there, no matter where we are. He says, I won't leave you. And we go, well, I know people that just went off and they just hate God and they curse him and everything. Well, that doesn't mean they're Christians. 
The Pharisees and Sadducees were the people with the brains. They knew God's word, but they rejected the Messiah. And in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talks about the man, uh, 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 Christian leaders who say, Lord, Lord, we've done all these things for you. And he says, depart from me, you who do iniquity. I never knew you. See, so there is this change of heart when he gives us holy, when we believe he stays right with us. When we know we've got that kind of a loving God that sticks with us, it's so much easier to, to wait when we're anxious for God to step in and do the kind of work he likes to do. And so he puts us in these uh, uh, interesting places. A lot of us say, you know, like, you know, Mark... Uh, I fail to, to trust God. Or I just don't wait on him. I'm anxious all the time, and I don't know what I'm going to do. I just feel guilty. And Welcome to the club. We're all that way to different degrees with different subjects, different issues. One of the ways that's really helped me, and some of you probably heard this before, but, but uh, probably not enough of you, so I'm going to share it with you on how it's helped me to, to, to take the anxiety and... and and, and to give it to the Lord. And I have to do it all the time. When I was building a house a few years ago, well, quite a few years ago, and uh, I, I had this level, a six-foot level, that got bent. Well, when you bend a level, it's not good anymore. I think somebody ran, somebody ran over it. So I have a big trash people tra- tra- trash uh, pile out in the cul-de-sac that I'm going to take away someday. And it's getting bigger and bigger, and I threw that level out there. Oh, that was expensive. Anyway, one of my friends from the church comes by, and he comes over to me, Hey, Mark, your, your level. It's, I found your level out there in the trash pile. I said, Well, it's bent. See how it's bent? Here we are. Throw it back out in the trash. And then another buddy comes by with his wife, and the wife is the carpenter in the family. So she sees it and grabs it. Come on, Mark, your level over here. Yeah, but see, it's bent, right? I can't use it. Back out in the trash pile. And then another buddy comes along, and he's got a little five-year-old. And I'm looking out the window that's not there yet. It's just wood. And I'm looking out, and he's this little five-year-old pulling out this great big uh, metal level. And he comes up to me, Mr. Matthews, I found your tool. And I said, oh, I've been looking for I'm lying, you know. I've been looking for that. And I was so happy. I wanted to cur- encourage the kid. Of course, when they left, out it goes again. And I think, i got to go get that level. I got, I put, and I put it on my wall in, in the garage. I says, this is going to help me remember something. There's something about this event. It's happened three times now. And what it is, is the little lesson that I learned from that is that we are in the... We want to get rid of those things that we are frustrated with because they just make life miserable when we're always anxious. And so God says, hey, I'll take care of that. I've got a trash pile a lot bigger than the one you've got. Every time that comes into your mind, whether you're lying in bed and then you're starting to worry about something, throw it out there. But it'll come back to me. Well, throw it out there again. It'll come back to me again. Well, throw it out there again. Or somebody says something to you and it brings it up. And you start worrying again. Throw it back out there. That's what walking by faith is all about. It's not about having it all together and we're always trusting God. And, you know, but it's constantly throwing it out there because Jesus wants to carry it for us. It's no good anyway. That level's worthless. So you could... There, we are... On the cutting edge of life. All these issues to be ready at any time during today, which is happening all the time when we're worrying, which means we're on this cutting edge of 
How are we going to act? Are we going to sit there and just really worried about it, or are we going to give it to God and let Him take care of it? So, I had a friend, he was a, he was a professor at the University of Idaho in electrical engineering, and he wanted to be in the ministry, so he went down to uh, Little Rock, Arkansas, and he worked downtown, the Skid Row portion, where there were a lot of drug addicts and people really having a difficult time. And that church ministry down there was having a fantastic ministry of people coming to the Lord. And they, they conducted their service in a very unusual way, but it really was finding success. So my other friend, who was down there in Little Rock, Arkansas, is where the Family Life of Campus Crusade headquarters is. So he's working down there, too. And we happen to be in the area, and he says, he says, Harry, the professor that's now a pastor, Harry is on the cutting edge. Right down there, with the, he's right on the cutting edge. Which, and I started thinking about that, and I thought, wait a minute, where am I then? Where's everybody here at Cole Community Church? Are you on the cutting edge? No, we're not, because we're not doing what he's doing. <laughs> so it made me think, hey, wait a minute, it's not. The question isn't, are, are we on the cutting edge? The question is, while on the edge, are we cutting? We're all on the edge, off and on, all the time. And so the cutting is the saying, Lord, I'm going to wait upon you. I'm going to give this to you. Uh, the, the Apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5, 9, our ambition is to please the Lord. That's our ambition. How do we please the Lord? The book of Hebrews said, it's impossible to please God without faith. Faith is waiting upon God. It's throwing that level out and letting him handle it. And it's good, like I say, it's going to be there all the time. We're always dealing with it all of our lives. Now, this is, this is where it really, the rubber meets the road, they say. We can either go along with the ride and wait upon the Lord, or the, 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 the stress, the anxiety can be there and weigh us down and, and, and make us somewhat dysfunctional. In verse 1, he says, Coastlands... Listen to me in silence. So he's telling the nations, listen now, I'm going to tell you about what I'm like, and that your gods are worthless. But he also tells the Israelites all the way through the rest of, of the book of Isaiah. As we go to the book of Isaiah, you listen to your, the pastors here talking about it. He keeps saying over and over again, listen, 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 I'm trying to tell you something. Pay attention, he says several times. Pay attention. In other words, we have to live by God's word. We have to live by what he says. Uh, we, we'd love to live by our emotions, but our emotions take us all over the place. And so we listen. Now, um, you know who Beethoven is. He's the, he's the great composer of classical music. And back in the early uh, 1800s, in his early 40s, in 1812 through 1815, he was totally without hearing. It was gradual for a while there, but when he got into the early 40s, and he was producing masterpieces, stone deaf, because his inner ear could hear the music, but he wanted to hear it. He wanted the audible sound. And so as he, as he played the piano in some of in his earlier uh, uh, compositions in, 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 during those years, he would 
pound as hard as he could because he wanted, and that's why some of his stuff is really bam, 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 because he wanted to hear it. And he'd put his ear right up to the wood, holding on. Susie, you, if you got over here, that way that's hard to do. To, and, and this is when he's, he's trying to compose and he wants to hear it. He got to a point where he actually had them saw off the legs of the piano so he could get it down where his, his knees could go on a pillow and he would, he would, hitting these notes again as hard as he could and he put a stick in his mouth and he pointed that stick right at the leg of the piano and on the floor right into that groove because he wanted to hear something that could go from his teeth and, and do something in his brain so he could appreciate the masterpieces that he was working on. And that's what God wants us to do. He wants us to get our ear right into the Word of God on a regular basis, like the kings were told that that's what they were supposed to do. Every day they were supposed to be listening to what God had to say. And that helps us, because if we're in the Word on a regular basis, we're in touch with this God who reveals to us who He is, what He's done for us, how He cares for us, where He's planning to take us, and how He wants us to live right now. And when we, the more we see this God in His Word, the easier it is for us to say, okay, it's yours. And a lot of you have stories where you've done that, said, Lord, I, I don't want that to eat away at my life. So if we're going to, well, yeah, I, I have to do this. I'm sorry, but I have to do this. I'm going to give you a couple of little Examples. I didn't give these in the first service. I didn't know if I was running out of time or what. But anyway, real quick. We got the big issues we worry about, and then there's the little ones. My wife's aunt, her name is Georgia, and they come down there for my, they come down and visit once in a while. They, their kids are in town here. So they were watching their kids while the kids went somewhere. They were watching the, the animals. Something went wrong, and they didn't know how to fix it. They were doing their best, and so we were talking with them, and, the, and, and Georgia says, godly woman. She says, well, I did what I could. You know, planned her way, basically. I did what I could. And then when the kids come back, we're just going to have to tell them what happened. She didn't say what it was. And she says, I'm going to let God handle the hard work. The hard work. I'm not going to worry about this. I'm not going to let this steal my joy. Well, what a, what a pleasant person to be around. Okay, one more thing. Merrill's a good friend of mine, goes here to the church. And he was telling me here not too long ago that Another truck swiped his truck and stopped, and Merle went over there, and, and, he, and the guy says, Is this your truck? And he goes, No, it belongs to Jesus. Now, there, And then he has a conversation with this guy. Now, this is a nice, beautiful blue pickup. So not long after that, a bunch of kids are coming by the other side of his pickup in their bicycles, and the last kid through goes, <laughs> puts a big mark on the side of his, the driver's side. And he sees it, and... And the kid, is this your pickup? And Merle comes in, oh, no, it, it belongs to Jesus. <laughs> and he has a, do you know who Jesus is? And he has a conversation to the, with, this little, with this boy about Jesus. The story's not over yet. Not long after that, my wife and I are out to dinner with another couple, and we're all sitting in the, in the, in the, in the parking area, and almost everybody's gone, and we're talking. Some guy in a big old pickup backs right into the back of my wife's beautiful 1994 Jeep Cherokee red. Great shape for an old vehicle. And we go, oh, so we walk over there. 
And I'm all the way, I'm thinking, you see now, Merrill, Merrill. <laughs> it's just so fresh in my mind how Merrill responded to his situation. We got there and I looked at it and the guy that did it standing there and I'll go, well, I, I guess uh, I can take care of that. I'm, I'm not worried about it. My wife looks up at me and she says, but it's my car. And uh, so I said, no, it belongs to Jesus. No, I didn't say that. <laughs> I should have said that. That would have been perfect. I might have got you know, in trouble. But uh, anyway, the point is, when we have these little situations that hit us, that we can deal with but have a struggle with, those are cutting-edge situations. And we can either blow up or we can let God show up. And he wants to show up through us as we are the lights that allow him to do that. So what we want to do is uh, remember that he directs our life and he deeply loves us. Let's pray. Father, uh, you put uncomfortable uh, people and circumstances in our life. and Often we ask why. And it's so that you will be able to show off as uh, we trust in you and experience the joy of waiting to see you act. So we thank you for that privilege of being loved so much, even when we are not as, as loving as we should be in our response to you. We thank you in, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.